Welcome to the Misty Bloom Book Club. Hi, it's Ada. I hope you're taking good care of yourself and doing well. In this episode, I will be reviewing Kintu by Jennifer Nantabuga McCombie. Okay, guys, two quick things which you've brought to my attention, which I'll address real quick. First, I know I usually say the author's full name throughout the episodes, but it's intentional to, you know, put respect on their name as it's spelled out on the book cover. My thinking is that that's how the author wants to be addressed, and that's that. I'm not going to call them Jennifer or Angie or Abubakar or Zinzi. We're not BFFs. (laughs) It's really that simple. The second thing, which I'm glad you've noticed, is I usually avoid mentioning if a book is award-winning or whatever, and it's not to diminish the award or a failure to acknowledge. After all, that information is publicly available anyway. The reason I try to avoid mentioning awards or literary prizes where possible is to refrain from making any false distinctions between award-winning books and otherwise. Because while awards are incredible, especially for minority writers, awards bring publicity to the book, just like you know an Oscar-winning movie gets more attention and viewership, or in the case of books, more readership. People make buying decisions around prizes and awards and all that great stuff, So awards are really extremely helpful for writers, especially less visible minority writers. They can use all the visibility they can get. Also, the awards come with considerable monetary compensation, which is phenomenal for writers because writing is not your typical nine to five guaranteed income stream. Um, look at me. I'm podcasting. So overall, back to my point is that while awards are extremely useful in many cases actually necessary, and trust me, I'd love to win a couple of them, but honestly to me, awards are not the final or comprehensive determiner of what makes good literature. Literature, like all other forms of art, is subjective. There are so many magnificent books out there that could go toe-to-toe and even surpass award-winning books by a clear mile. So that's the reason I don't bring awards up, unless of course it's mine. To me, great literature is great literature, whether or not it's award winning. So now that I've addressed these questions and thanks for bringing them up, let's start as we typically do with a teaser of what Kintu by Jennifer Nansubuga McCombie is about. Kintu is an intergenerational epic saga set in Uganda. So guys, yeah, we're off to Uganda in this episode, East Africa, baby. Quick sidebar, my claim to fame with Uganda is I was in a flight once that stopped in Entebbe airport to refuel and pick up passengers. So I've been on Ugandan soil, or maybe more accurately, uh, Ugandan tarmac. (laughs) Just a quick reminder that you can support this podcast by becoming a member of the Misty Bloom Book Club. Membership perks include backstage access to my book list, so you can read along with me in real time, receive a free signed copy of my novel, Oibo, access to my virtual quarterly book club meetings, access to bonus episodes, and so much more. If membership is not your thing, but you'd like to show some love to this podcast, you can leave a tip in the tip jar. 
Go to www.mistybloom.com for more information. Anyway, this book kicks off in 1750 in the kingdom of Buganda, so the pre-colonial Uganda. Here we meet Kentu, after whom this book is obviously named. Um, Kentu is a powerful and wealthy man. He is the Pokino, or governor of the Budu province within the Buganda kingdom and is married to identical twins. Kintu has a lot of children, many of whom are twins, and he also adopts a boy, Kalima, who is the child of a Tutsi immigrant, Entwire, who lives in their community. Kintu loves Kalima just like he does his biological children, but something happens between Kintu and Kalima, and in response, Entwire, the Tutsi immigrant, aka Kalima's biological father, I hope you're following this, lays a curse on Kintu and his future generations. And so the book follows the manifestation of the curse on Kintu's descendants. As I was reading this novel very early on, I noticed the obvious influence of Chenua Achebe's seminal Things Fall Apart, and not because of the pre-colonialism aspects of Kintu, but also because of that pivotal relationship between Okonkwa and Ihimafuli in Things Fall Apart, echoed in the relationship between Kintu and Kalima. Are you guys still following me? <laughs> My suspicions were confirmed on page 312, where the author references Things Fall Apart as a work that's being explored as a social study by one of the characters so it felt good to be right <laughs> um so let's talk about what i loved about kintu the scale of this novel is grand if this novel were a building it would be a stately manner the book runs about 400 pages with about 20 something major characters seriously i'm not gonna lie when i first got the book i saw it ran 400 pages in small print i was nervous because i didn't want to spend so much time reading a book i wouldn't perhaps enjoy i'll post a picture of my copy on social media so you'll see what i mean at over 400 pages it felt daunting to even start but i'm glad i did it was compulsively readable a page turner like i mentioned this novel is intergenerational spans several descendants of kintu the breadth of the novel is formidable but in the hands of this writer it was never an unwieldy beast from pages 1 to 410, Jennifer Nansubuga McCumbie was always in charge. She never lost control of her story or characters. It was terrific. This is the type of novel of such an impressive scale that challenges me in my own writing to squeeze myself for more juice, for more story to be told. This is the book that I wish that Homegoing by Ya Jesse was. Have you guys read Homegoing? Homegoing by Ya Jesse was also intergenerational, but to me, the descendant stories didn't feel connected. And I get that you could totally argue that Homegoing was about the disconnect, to say the least, that happened because of the transatlantic slave trade. However, the biggest frustration that I had with Homegoing was that it felt to me like a book of short stories, like a collection of vignettes and not a cohesive novel. Homegoing got a lot of really great accolades and it did have its shining moments and I loved a few of the stories. It had a great theme, but overall, I personally found it to be underwhelming. I think it got a lot of buzz because it was an issue book. Listen to episode one of the Misty Bloom Book Club for my fuller take on issue books. But although Kintu is not about the transatlantic passage, I just think that Jennifer Nansubuga McCombie's ability to tell that really good story of generations of Africans interrupted by European influence in Kintu's case, colonial is just so masterfully done here okay moving along 
This novel is divided into six books. I loved, 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 did I say loved book one? Book one covers the first 15 chapters. These chapters are where we first meet Kintu, his complicated family, and also watch him execute his duties as governor of Budu province in service to the Kabaka, that is the king of Baganda. These 15 chapters of book one were chef's kiss. Superb. I rarely reread books, but I'll reread these chapters again at some point. And I think what was particularly impressive um, about this book one is that the author balances the plottings of Kintu's household on one hand and the political machinations that happen at the Kabaka's palace with such jaw-dropping finesse. For me, these were the best parts of Kintu by far. Beautiful, beautiful work. Thirdly, all of the different descendants of Kintu that appear in this novel are all very well done fleshed out very solidly three-dimensional they arrive on the page with a history you get to pay witness to their current lives and peek into where they're headed it is so very well done it's an outstanding achievement of a novel that jennifer nansubuga mccumbie has written so let me talk about the writing for a moment jennifer nansubuga mccumbie writes with such exhilaration and pride in kintu she tells the story of a country through its people the writing does not try hard. It is not self-conscious. It is both masterful and unpretentious at the same time. I'll read you a few examples of her sentences to illustrate what I mean by masterful yet unpretentious. On page 123, here we go. When there's no one to remind you of who you are, then you belong. You see how profound that sentence is, but also like humble at the same time? Here's another example from the next page, 124. Who strangled the toothpaste? One word, strangle, that successfully captures what the ordinary person would describe as squeezing from the middle of the tube. And one more example from page 228. From then on, the disease accelerated. Night sweats, fevers, fatigue, a funny rash on the left arm. Sometimes her mind went and her feet hurt. She suffered from this, that, and everything. Then her weight dropped. Before we knew it, she had lost her hair. Then her feet hurt so much, I put her in a wheelchair. From the wheelchair, Naiga hopped into the coffin. So I thought this was so well done because it was about the tragedy of a prolonged illness, but there is an effortless, humorous effect to the passage. Also, I hope you didn't miss the irony of someone who lost their ability to walk, but still hopping into death. The author has a wry sense of humor, which I appreciate. Jennifer Nansubuga McCumbie's insights on colonialism are so incredibly keen. On page 314, she writes, But before I read it, just for context, the passage I'm going to read is about a character named Miisi. Miisi is an intellectual who was raised by colonial-era missionaries, Irish priests who raised Miisi in such a manner that degrades and dehumanizes everything that's African. The Irish missionaries imbue themselves with a pseudo-messianic nature. You know, we're here to save the savages and bring Christ to the heathens. So Miisi comes to associate whiteness with goodness, godliness, intelligence, and he imagines that Europe must be heaven. And so that's a kind of effective brainwashing that the white European missionaries did on Miisi, who ingests these messages and even grows up being grateful to the colonialists for saving him from his savagery and heathenism. At some point later on in his life, Miisi goes to Britain to study for a PhD. In the process of studying and living in Britain, he finds that British people do not exactly fit the illusion the colonialists brainwashed into him. And in response to the dismantling of this false reality he's carried all of his life, 
Meisi builds for himself instead an idealized Wakanda-esque narrative of Africa. So with this background and context, I'll read you the quote on page 314. The image Meisi had constructed in Britain of the noble African rooted in his cultural values and shunning westernization was a myth. What he returned to were people struggling to survive, who in the process had lost the ability to discern vivid colors of right and wrong. Anything that gave him a chance to survive was moral. To make matters worse, people around him, including his family, called him Muzungu. Meisi had become European among his people. Moving along. So Jennifer Nansubuga Makumbi also writes against the backdrop of key historical events in Uganda's post-colonial life, one of them being the rise and fall of Idi Amin. While Idi Amin has never featured too much in my political consciousness, I will admit that, the author resurrects him and makes the reader rethink what they think they know of Idi Amin. He has been widely painted as a wild, cannibalistic, tyrannical despot, and I've never before questioned this caricature of him. But Jennifer Nansubuga Makumbi for the first time made me step back and reconsider who has been responsible for painting Idi Amin in such colors. It's sad how I never questioned the caricature of Idi Amin. I'm sure he was tyrannical and perhaps unhinged, as most despots tend to be. But who created the conditions for an Idi Amin to rise? Who revels and benefits from the narrative of the savage, cannibalistic African? Those are the questions we should be asking, and we know the answers. Overall, this book is a mic drop. It's a feat. An achievement is the kind of book if a random stranger by way of conversation, as Americans tend to do, were to ask Jennifer Nansubuga Makumbi what she does. You know, like, hey, girl, hey, Jennifer, nice to meet you. What do you do? And then Jennifer can be like that while pointing to Kinto. <laughs> she can die happy knowing she wrote this novel and accomplished something astounding. And I don't use astounding flippantly. So there it is, you guys. That is what I loved about Kintu by Jennifer Nansubuga McCumbie. But before I launch into what I didn't like quite as much, here is a message from my sponsor. Stay with me. This episode of the Misty Bloom Book Club is made possible by the support of my novel, Oibo, spelled O-Y-I-B-O. It is 1976 when prodigal daughter Songoli returns to her mother's home in a remote southeastern Nigerian village with a wailing toddler on her hip. Not long after, Songoli vanishes again, leaving the fair-skinned and dreadlocked child Adesua and unanswered questions behind. Oibo is the haunting chronicle of Adesua's troubled girlhood in the village where she is persecuted for her biracial dreadlocked appearance. And after a tragedy occurs, the novel falls at Deswa's devastating coming of age in the bustling cities of Lagos and ultimately Brooklyn, New York. Reviewers have described Oibo as captivating, powerful, and heart-wrenching. Oibo is available on Amazon. Welcome back to the Misty Bloom Book Club. Thanks for hanging with me. So let's jump into what I didn't care for about Kintu. I hated the prologue. I felt like the novel should have started with chapter one, Kintu's story. So the prologue was a narrative of the grisly, violent murder of one of Kintu's descendants. It was impactful in the sense that for the novel's opening, it grabbed your attention, but it left me with a very bad taste in my mouth that took me a good while to shake off. For me, there was no literary merit to the outright violence. It was disconcerting and felt like it was done for shock value. 
and I always find shock value to be a cheap ploy. Also, the prologue had your classic, almost paint-by-numbers style MFA writing. I even googled to see if Jennifer Nansabuga McCombie had an MFA, and she does. While MFA writing is fantastic writing, don't get me wrong, but it feels the same to me. I can spot it anywhere churned out from the same creative writing workshops and factories and for that reason it feels soulless to me so i was immediately disappointed starting this novel but i was so glad i stuck with it and i didn't have to wait long at all because the tides quickly turned on chapter one but basically i didn't care for the prologue i'm sorry okay so moving along let's talk about the character miisi on one hand miisi is vehemently intellectual you know an atheist cerebral and rational person who is out of place and sticks out like a sore thumb in the village because of his you know intellectualism but also miisi has visions and has some metaphysical experiences and while i do think people can be both i don't think the author did a great job of reconciling the two aspects of miisi Miisi himself, the staunch atheist rationalist, does not interrogate these opposites within himself. It was not believable at all. Also, Miisi arrived late in the book and we spend the final 16. Yes, you heard that right. 16, 1, 6. Chapters on this guy. I was sick of him. He was cool for like two or three chapters tops, but I did not find him to be particularly interesting or fascinating for 16 chapters. So I got tired pretty quickly reading about the character Miisi. And here's a tip for new or aspiring writers. Please do not introduce important characters late in your novel. Bring them on board early on or in the middle somewhere. Otherwise, the reader, like me in this case, is constantly questioning the character's significance instead of focusing on the story. It's very distracting. Also, when you delay introducing us to a character who has a very important role to play in your story, they end up not feeling like real people, but like plot devices. It's very deus ex machina. Imagine meeting Jon Snow for the first time ever in season six of Game of Thrones. Mm-mm, no. Okay, moving along. I found two typos in this book. I think finding a rare typo or two is super cute. I forgot to log what the first typo I found was, but I smiled when I encountered the second one. The second one I found was on page 335 and it reads, Miisi changed subject. Did you catch that? Miisi changed subject, not Miisi changed the subject. I find typos like that to be cute in the sense of someone forgetting to fix their collar or like a strand of hair out of place. Of course, like everyone else, I don't want to see typos galore, typos everywhere. It's horrible. That's not cute. It's poor quality control. But seeing the odd rare one or two throughout the book is super cute. I don't know. It just makes me smile. Those imperfections are sweet and it feels relatable. You know what I mean? I don't know. Maybe I'm just weird. Okay, finally, the ending was a jumbled mess of a resolution. It was similar to how I felt reading the ending of The Hate You Give. The writing itself in terms of artistry was still fantastic, but it was a cramming of too much into the final chapters. The author's manic dedication to giving all the characters a resolve. It was an exhausting note to end on. Another tip for writers, watch your pacing, please. It's like being the conductor of an orchestra. All of the musicians and instruments can't all be playing at the same tempo during the crescendo. So that's it in terms of what I didn't care for about Kintu. Let's turn now to guessing who Jennifer Nansubuga McCombie is like. But before I do that, here is a super quick message from my sponsor. Stay with me. This episode of the Misty Bloom Book Club is made possible by the support of my novel, Oibo, spelled O-Y-I-B-O. It is 1976 when prodigal daughter Songoli returns to her mother's home in a remote southeastern Nigerian village with a wailing toddler on her hip. 
Not long after, Songoi vanishes again, leaving the fair-skinned and dreadlocked child Adesua and unanswered questions behind. Oibo is the haunting chronicle of Adesua's troubled girlhood in the village where she is persecuted for her biracial dreadlocked appearance. And after a tragedy occurs, the novel falls at Deiswa's devastating coming of age in the bustling cities of Lagos and ultimately Brooklyn, New York. Reviewers have described Oibo as captivating, powerful, and heart-wrenching. Oibo is available on Amazon. Welcome back to the Misty Bloom Book Club. Thank you for hanging out with me. So what do I think Jennifer Nansabuga McCombie is like? I think she's a person of integrity, the kind of person whose word you can rely on but also expects the same in return and will hold people accountable to what they said they're going to do. I also think she is a hardworking, grounded, sensible type individual. So that's my guess of who I think Jennifer Nansabuga McCombie is. If you know her, let me know if I pegged her correctly or got it wrong. <laughs> Final thoughts. I profusely, enormously loved Kintu. It's freaking epic in the truest, most authentic sense of the word epic. If you're in the mood for a novel that straddles the traditional and the modern, in the vein of Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe, definitely check out Kintu by Jennifer Anansubuga McCumbie. Thank you for hanging out with me on this episode of the Misty Bloom Book Club. Don't forget to like, share, leave a comment, and subscribe. To find me on social media or to contact me for sponsorship opportunities, or if you'd like to become a member of the Misty Bloom Book Club and enjoy all of those wonderful perks, go to www.mistybloom.com for all of my information. Be sure to check out my novel, Oibo, spelled O-Y-I-B-O, exclusively available on Amazon. Until next time, keep reading, stay lit, peace and love. 